So we're in finishing Revelation chapter 3, the letter to the church of Laodicea. I'm going to ask that as we begin that you write down these two addresses. Psalm 30 or Psalm 43 verse 4, Psalm 43 verse 4, and Psalm 37 verse 4. Let me read those to you. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. That's Psalm 43, 4. And then Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in Yahweh, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I want you to hang on to those verses because they are to be the desire of your heart. And they are the proof of the warning that is given to this church that it's not for you. This letter, this letter is the culmination of all the letters written to the churches. It, more than any other letter, written to the churches, demonstrates the contradiction of the professors of Christ with those that are possessors of Christ. And the contradiction is found in what is the greatest source of pleasure in our life. In verse 21, Jesus gives us that contradiction. He makes demands on his children. He has that right, you know. To make demands on his children. And that last verse, he who has an ear to hear, that's stated to all the churches. And it's not an offer. It's a demand from a reigning king to his slaves. And in this letter, he restates that demand. He demands that we act as he did. He says, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Verse 21. That also is a requirement statement. We are to overcome, to remain steadfast and true as he did. And here is the verse that explains why Jesus was willing to overcome. It comes from the book of John, chapter 14, verse 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. This letter, the the letter to the church of Laodicea, it's contradictory. Not in what it says, but it's given to make a contradiction, a separation between those with hedonistic desires, Because we all, all humans have hedonistic desires. And prior to coming to Christ, we have carnal hedonistic desires. And after regeneration and coming to Christ, we are meant to have Christian hedonistic desires. What's a hedonist? Well, a hedonist is a person who lives for pleasure. A person who gives themselves completely over to the total pursuit of that which brings them pleasure. 
which is why I said that all people, all humans, are hedonists. And we all have hedonistic desires because all people live for that which brings them the greatest pleasure. But Jesus, he didn't just have hedonistic desires. Jesus was the true hedonist, which is what he said of himself back in John chapter 14, verse 31. He obeyed the Father because it was him, in him was found the fullness of his joy. His Father was the greatest pleasure for Christ, so he gave himself over to pursuing him. And Jesus was full of joy. In John 15, 11, 11, he said, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. His desire for us is for us to be hedonist, to experience the greatest amount of joy possible here, now. Another time we are told, at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in his spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was um, this was well-pleasing in your sight, Luke 10, 21. And there we're told that Jesus rejoiced greatly because he had just been revealed as God to these men. And soon that consummation would occur that would bring them back into right relationship with the Father. And he was rejoicing at that moment, knowing that it would only cost him his life to make that reconciliation. And yet he rejoiced. And the same word that is used there for rejoicing is the same word that is used when Mary praised God for the joy that she had found because she had been given the right to carry her Savior. Jesus was a true Christian hedonist. How can I be sure? Because the Bible says of Jesus, but of the sons, he says, your throne of God is forever and ever, and the scepter of unrighteousness or uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above all your companions. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. Jesus was the most joyous man ever. He was supremely joyful. And seeking after that and experiencing that which brought him the most joy. That man is the man that opens this letter with a comparison between himself and those who claimed to be of him. In verse 14 he says, To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, this is what the amen, the faithful and, wit and true witness, the beginning of creation of God says. So let's tackle each one of those things he says about himself. He said the amen. And did you notice there that the amen, that that's capitalized? What does that mean? Well, it means it's being used as a name. Well, whose name? Christ's name. And the meaning of the amen that is used there in the original language that means faithful and true witness. 
And it's speaking of Jesus and describing his attributes, just as 2 Corinthians 1.20 does. For as many as, as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also, through him is our amen, capital A, to the glory of God through us. So in our culture, in our day though, amen is almost exclusively used at the end of a prayer. Matter of fact, try saying a prayer without closing it with amen and see how uncomfortable you become. But you're hard-pressed to find it used that way in the Bible. It's used very often to praise God, such as in Jews 24 and 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his, of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Christ Jesus our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And Jesus himself used that word more than any other person in the entirety of the Bible. Not just the New Testament, but the entirety of the Bible. He uses that word amen 103 times. The apostles, all put together, they only used it 29 times in the Bible. But it's how Jesus used that word amen that's very telling. Because you're thinking, I don't remember reading anywhere where Jesus used amen, especially 103 times. And that's because it's translated in our English as verily, verily, or truly, truly. You see, when Christ used amen, he did so as a statement of fact, truly, truly. The same thing that was said in verse 16 of Isaiah 65, and it's the same thing that is said of Jesus in verse 14 of our text. When Jesus says amen, he means, thus saith the Lord. He is the amen and the faithful and true witness. And this is what is being contrasted with the church in Laodicea. He was the faithful and true witness. And they were not. But faithful and true witness of what? That which is said in verse 17 of Isaiah 65. For behold, I'm creating a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come upon the heart. In verse 17 of Isaiah 65, the same meaning of the description given of Jesus in verse 14, which says he's the beginning of the creation of God. In that last letter that we studied, the letter to the church of Philadelphia, Jesus quoted extensively from the book of Isaiah, another revelation of Christ. And he did so to give weight of what he was telling that church there, that church that was very small, seemingly insignificant. And to that church, he wanted them to know, to understand that the love that was possessed or professed for Israel, the true Israel in Isaiah, in Isaiah 43, 4, which says, Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. He wanted them to know that this was meaning them, which is what he said in Revelation 3, 9. Behold, I'm giving up those of the synagogue of Satan, those who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and make them know that I have loved you. And here, to this church, he once again quotes from Isaiah, 
but for a completely different reason. To this church, he uses the truth of who he is as a contradiction with those that are claiming to be of him and are living as carnal hedonists for the pleasure of the world. And no Christ isn't confused about creation when he says, I'm the beginning of creation, or his part that he played in it. He's not saying that he's not the one who created all things. He was, just as the Father was, and just as the Spirit was. Here he says that he is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And the meaning of that last bit, the beginning of the creation of God, that's explained in Isaiah 65, 17. And him being the beginning of the creation is also explained in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So here he defines himself to the church in Laodicea as the beginning of the fulfilling of the new creation prophecy given back in Isaiah. And it's the quality of himself that is spoken of in verse 14, that of being the faithful witness. This is what this church is lacking. The church in Laodicea had no gospel witness. It fit in with that city very well. It was no different than any other club in that city. The members of this church were the same as those of the Rotary or the Lions Club. In the second half of that description of himself, that he's the beginning of the creation of God, that speaks to what is lacking in this church. Because the same thing that that man's name that was representative of Christ in Isaiah 22, do you remember last week when we were talking about Eliakim, what that man's name meant? God is resurrection. That man who has said, then I will set the keys of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. Verse 22, same exact thing that Christ said of himself in his description of himself to the church of Philadelphia. Verse 7 of chapter 3. This is what is lacking in this church in Laodicea. Resurrection power. The beginning of the creation of God. This is why they had no witness in that pagan culture. This church wasn't just kind of off base in their theology. They weren't just playing fast and loose with the word of God and the worship of God. This church was dead. How dead? Dead, dead. There is no commendation at all for this church. Zero. Nada. Nothing. There are no people who have not defiled their garments as there were in Sardis. There is no promise of any of them walking with the Lord. None. But for many, in fact, for most people, they don't read this letter in this manner. They say, these people were once cold. Then they were hot and now they're lukewarm. And Jesus is telling them here in this letter, you better straighten up and fly right, mister, or I'm going to get out my whiteout, and I'm going to erase your name from the Lamb's Book of Life. That's what they will tell you is being said here. And that's what they tell you will tell you what he means when he says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And it's simply not biblical. 
nor is it the intent of this letter. Jesus says to this church the same thing that he says to the church in Sardis. In verse 15, I know your deeds. And no, this was not a vacant building. It was sitting idly in a city. It was active. It was vibrant. It was wealthy. And it was very worldly. And Jesus says, I know your deeds. And lest we become smug and get condescending, we need to understand that God knows our deeds as well. All of them. Just think back to this week. Because Christ knows every one of your deeds. He knows what you watched. He knows what you purchased. And he knows what you consumed. And don't think that just because you're sitting here today, that means that he's okay with what you did. Any more than he was okay with the deeds of the Laodiceans. And then he says that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. We understand that first part, that he knows that they're neither cold nor hot. We understand hot, and we understand cold. We, we get that part. But that last part, that I wish that you were cold or hot, we don't get that part. Simply because, again, we've been poorly taught. And I want you to feel the weight of how infectious and even heretical, seemingly innocent and humanistic teachings, what they lead to. Because how many of us have been taught and even comforted in the thought that Jesus is speaking to redeem people here, that these guys were Christians, they were just carnal or lukewarm. And we've been taught that the, this church, the church in Laodicea, this equates to our modern church, the church that is neither cold nor hot, it's just lukewarm. It has just enough of Christ not to fit into the world and just enough of the world to really not fit in with Christ. So it's lukewarm. And then we comfort ourselves in thinking, yeah, that's me. I'm kind of just a lukewarm Christian. Better than being cold, though. At least I have some warmth. That has got to mean something, right? It has to count for something. No. Before we can talk about the hot or cold, we need to deal with that word that is translated in our English as wish. Because that word is only used four times in the New Testament. Listen to one other time that it's used. Paul uses this in Galatians 5.12. He says, I wish that those who are upsetting you would even mutilate themselves. Now, I really don't think that the Apostle Paul was wishing upon a star that the Jews would mutilate themselves. The word there doesn't mean wish as we use it. Not blowing out candles and making a wish. Not throwing a coin in a fountain and making a wish. Not that kind of wish. The literal meaning of that word is ought or should. So rightly translated, what Paul is saying is that those Jews should worry about themselves and they should be looking at their own doctrine instead of trying to influence others. And the wish that is being spoken of by Christ, this is speaking about the will of God. What he is saying is to possess my name, you either need to be hot 
or cold, not lukewarm. In context to this church, and here he's speaking of the will of God. Again, something that we humanize, that we humans have just basically humanized. We think that the will of God is singular. And in thinking this way, we have to dethrone God and make him in our image. We have to have a biblical understanding of what the will of God is to truly understand the will of God. And the key text to understand the will of God is found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verse 29. There it states, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. Deuteronomy 29.29 provides a biblical theological framework for understanding the divine will of God. The heart of this passage of Deuteronomy 29.29 is a distinction made between the secret things that belong to God, which is his secret will, and the things which are revealed, his revealed will, and those belong to us and to our children. There are countless things that we as humans don't know. We're finite. But the same thing cannot be said of God. He is infinite, all-knowing. God's knowledge is exactly like him, absolutely perfect. And unlike us, God does not need to work out problems through deduction. He has no need for counselors to determine what to do in a crisis or to help him cope with a moral conundrum. God is infinite, incomprehensible. He has perfect knowledge of himself and of all things. But this secret knowledge, that belongs to God alone. And this is the inscrutability of God. There are things known only to God that are past our finding out. And since we are created, we must depend on God to know his will at all. And the only way that we know his will is through his word. So the point is, is that God is the interpreter of his will. And this is why the things revealed are so important. Because scripture God's scripture represents the self-revelation of God's will in written form. And when we read God's word, his written will in scripture, we discover that the Bible makes distinctions between God's decorative will, God's perceptive will, and God's will of good pleasure. The decorative will of God. This refers to his perfect and wise counsel in freely ordaining and decreeing whatsoever comes to pass. The Apostle Paul states in Ephesians 1.11, In Christ we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this is the great explanation of God's good will or will of good pleasure. The shedding of his blood, the giving of his son, the reconciliation of son of his create or some of his creation. And this is the only the only reason that any can be saved is because of the will of his good pleasure. God's decreative will highlights his total sovereignty over all things, including creation, redemption, history, and providence. And for this reason, it can never be thwarted or by even by sin or our disobedience. And this doesn't suggest that God delights in sin or is the author of sin, but says that he only only that he permits it in order to accomplish what his sovereign will is. 
God's perceptive will. That represents the moral standard that God requires all people to meet. All people. It tells us what God demands of all of his image bearers. It broadcasts what we should do, irregardless of whether we obey it or not. And this is why the command to repent is for all people. And this is the meaning of verses 15 and 16 of Revelation 3. And the perceptive will of God is concisely summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. The perceptive will of God is summarized in the maxim, you shall be holy because I am holy, 1 Peter 1.16. And even though this is the perceptive will of God, even though he commands all people everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him, we will not because we cannot. And let's talk about that hot and cold and the lukewarm. Because this is specific to this church. See, Laodicea was a very wealthy city during that Roman period. You want to know how wealthy it was? Well, in AD 60, an earthquake rocked that city, destroyed the entire city. When Rome heard of it, they offered to to help pay to rebuild the city. And the city fathers in Laodicea said, no thanks, we got it. We've got enough money of our own. We have this. You see, Laodicea wasn't just located on a major trade route that connected into itself to important cities like Ephesus, Smyrna, and Sardis, but also it was a center of textile production and of the banking industry, had a thriving medical community, it had medical schools. It had it all, except a good water source. Not that it didn't have water, because it did. It was located on a river. So water wasn't the issue. The issue was good water. And good meaning the high dollar stuff. You know, the good stuff. Because in that culture at that time, if you had money, the temperature of water mattered. Hot water, that was thought to have great medicinal value. And one of those, their neighboring cities, Heropopolis, had hot springs. And so all the wealthy people would go there to get hot drinks and hot baths. And then there was another neighboring city, Colossae. It had ice cold springs, which was also in vogue at that time. So all the wealthy people would travel to Colossae so they could go get a cold one, either a cold drink or a cold dip on a hot summer's day. But poor old rich Laodicea, it didn't have either of those things. But what they did have was a hot springs five miles outside of town. And since they had more money than cents, they paid to have a state-of-the-art aqueduct built to pipe in that hot water. And it worked. Soon, the water is flowing into all the homes of the elite, the well-to-do. Only there was an issue. By the time that traveling, or by, time, by the time that boiling water traveled those five miles through that lead pipe, it's no longer hot. It was just lukewarm. Same temperature as the water they could have got out of their wells, right outside their houses. And this is the observational point that Jesus is using in speaking to them about their spiritual state. 
which is the crux of verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of your mouth. He there is equating their spiritual state with the thing that no matter how much money or prestige that this city had, couldn't be hidden. The thing that they disdained is common, that natural, lukewarm water, the one that they would spit out of their mouths in disgust. (laughs) Far beneath me to drink that. They were just as lukewarm as the water that they drank. The water that they considered worthless because it was neither hot nor cold. We need to understand the comparison being made by Jesus in comparing hot and cold water with lukewarm water. To them, hot water was good. Cold water was good. Lukewarm water, worthless. And this is why we need to rightly understand the the comparison being made here between the holy and the profane. Can the redemption of God, can that be considered worthless? Because those that claim that these are Christians, or that is what they're saying, is that God's redemption is worthless. But what does the Bible say concerning the works of God? Are they worthless? Listen to Psalm 111, how God speaks about his works. He says, great are the works of Yahweh. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever, verses 2 and 3. And what was said of the creation that God did in Genesis? Was that just okay? The one where we're told in Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. So do we now, is, or, or what we are thinking, or do we now believe that salvation reconciliation with God? Are we really saying that this is not good, not very good? Because what most mainstream evangelicals have been taught that this statement by Jesus means is that I would just prefer you to be hot. That would mean that you're on fire for him. Or he would prefer that you're cold and then he could revitalize you. But in a lukewarm state, You have too much Christ in you to enjoy the world and too much world in you to enjoy Christ. And for those that hold to this theology and say that he's going to erase your name from the Lamb's Book of Life, he's going to repo that blood that he shed on your behalf. You're on your own. And this is what they think of the salvation of God. They think when they teach this that the salvation of God is a revolving door that is open to all, that you can either walk into it, and then if you don't want it anymore, you can just walk right out too. But this is not what Christ is saying. The lukewarm Christian is being described here is not a possessor of Christ with carnal tendencies. They are a professor of Christ that have no desire, no witness, and no life in them. So, wait, David, are you saying that there's no such thing as a carnal Christian? No, there are carnal Christians. But what that is, what is defined as a carnal Christian matters. Again, we have been taught poorly, and we've been led poorly in this. 
In that first letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul had this to say concerning this young church. He said in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3, And I, brothers, was not able to speak to you as spiritual men, but as fleshly men, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are still not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? And this is where that term, carnal, comes from. That word fleshly means carny, meat. We use the word now, carne asada, meat with beans. Um, this is what that means. But who is Paul talking to here? Who were these carnal, fleshly Christians? Did he have to go to their house to talk to them? Did he have to go out to the lake, to the campsites, to the golf courses, to the bars to confront them in their carnality? These people were in church. These were individuals who were regularly attending church. They were active in their church, but they had brought their carnality into the church, which was causing divisions within the body. A point made in verse 4, for one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am Apollos. Are you not mere men? There again, he's comparing them, telling them, you are different. But this is not what we've been taught a lukewarm or carnal Christian is. What we have been taught and what we say is that heathen who lives like the devil, who makes the practice of sinning, who refuses to obey the clear command of God, but who at some point walked an aisle, raised a hand, or just because they call themselves Christian, we call them a carnal Christian now. Just lukewarm. Is this biblical? What about that person who says that they're saved, born again, but will not submit to the Word of God? Can they be a true convert? Well, in the letter to, to that elder Titus, God through Paul addressed this question. There, after inviting Titus, why he was sent to Crete to develop and strengthen the church by training up and installing elders, he warns Titus about those who claim to be of Christ but are unwilling to submit to his word. Verse 16, he says to them, of them, they profess to know God, but by their works they deny him, being detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And what this means is simple. Your words mean nothing. It's what you do, it's your actions that prove your words. Because I can claim that I love my spouse, but if I never come home, if I'm out chasing other women... It's my actions that prove my words. And this is why that axiom, that old axiom so is right. Doctrine divides. Because Scripture is the dividing line between the saved and the unsaved. It is obedience to Scripture that proves salvation. Sola Scriptura. God always uses Scripture to find whose are His. It's when you can point to Scripture, clear scriptural truths, such as you must belong to a local body, you must be active in that body, and you must be a cheerful supporter of that body. 
that you can't be living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and call yourself a Christian. Obedience to the word is the hallmark of the redeemed and lack of care for the commands of God. This is the hallmark of the professor, the lukewarm, the unredeemed. This is why we're given 2 Corinthians 13.5, which tells us, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? And listen to James concerning the comfort for those that console themselves, that they are merely just lukewarm or carnal. And in context, what James is doing is confronting those that claim that they are betrothed to Christ and by their actions are proving that they are not. James 4.4, he says, You adulterers, do you not know that friendship of the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. He calls those that claim that they have been betrothed to God and live as friends of this world adulterers, enemies of God. Are we enemies of God, the saved? Because Paul tells us in Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And James ends his thought concerning those who claim to be carnal Christians with this, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows to do the right thing and does not do it, to him it is sin. And that sin is very blatant there. The same thing that Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea because they were boasting in their arrogance. He says of them in verse 17 of Revelation 3, because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and you don't know that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, and blind and naked. And it was, there was their blindness in these areas. These were their actions that were evidence of their lack of salvation. And these people, the ones living there, they were just acting upon their hedonistic tendencies. They were living for the thing that brought them the most joy. And it wasn't Christ. And this is what Christ says of them. Do you actually think that these people actually walked around saying these things out loud? That they walked around boasting, I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I have need of nothing? Probably not, but then again, neither do we. But what do our actions say? And what Jesus says in saying that he knows their deeds is saying that their actions were saying these things. Their actions were actually speaking the truth. And if you ever want to know what is the most important thing to any person, what brings any person the most pleasure in life, just look at their spending habits. After their necessities, where does the money go? What Christ is saying to this church in Laodicea, it's important to all of us here. Because, again, I want to make sure that we understand, is Christ condemning those that are wealthy? Is that what he's saying, that we all need to live as paupers? 
if he's saying that you've got a, if you have a new car or a big house or if you go on nice vacations that you can't be saved, not at all. Do you remember Job? There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. That man was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. He had seven sons, three daughters. His possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pairs of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the sons of the east, Job 1, 1 through 3. Money's not the issue. It's what we value the most. The same thing that Christ tells us in Matthew 6. Don't store up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves don't break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You will act on the hedonistic desires within you for those things that you value the most. And God's love for us should cause us to live as Christ did, valuing what he did and not conforming ourselves into the image, or I'm sorry, and conforming us into the image of his son and live submitted to his word. The issue that is being spoken about to this church, the one that was claiming to be of Christ is that they were just like the culture that they lived in. They were just like the water that they pumped into the houses of the elite and the rich in this city. Lukewarm, useless. This church was completely given over to that culture. And the the claims that Christ says that they make are exactly the same as the claims that the city made. We are rich. We are wealthy. We have no need for anything. This church is completely culturally relevant. And this church is characterized by the things that are not said of them by Christ. There are no saints that have kept his word in this church. There are no works that are approved by him. All that they are doing, every action of this church was an anathema to him. And they're so blind that the word of God that they probably are using in their church services doesn't even dent, doesn't even make any kind of difference at all in their smug self-assessment that we are safe in the arms of Christ, which is what is meant by that last half of verse 17. You don't know that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, and blind, and naked. And what is the cure that is prescribed for those that are so blind by their worldliness or their fleshliness? Verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be manifested and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He tells them here, Value, which is tr- value that which is truly valuable. He tells them, buy white garments in order to hide the shame of their nakedness. Meaning that they're naked and they don't even know it. We need to understand that all people will be held to the same standard by God. Irregardless of where they lived or when they lived or what culture they lived in. And even irregardless to what God they served. He makes the same declaration to all people everywhere. 
And this is the conundrum for us. Because these people are, tell, are being told there to do which they can't do. You can't buy your way into salvation. You can't will yourself into redemption. You can't do this outside of God's will of good pleasure. But having said that, once you have been regenerated and your heart has been made new and you have affection for God, that's how you get in there. But once you are saved, your value system will be, dip, will be different compared to the world. It will be. And how you handle money. And again, what is the thing that Christ is using here as the comparison that these people are merely professing him and not possessing him? It's how they handle money. And how you handle money. The purposeful manner in which you use it proves that which you claim and demonstrates what you value. Do you remember Zacchaeus? He's a great illustration of this fact. When Jesus opened the door to him, he did this. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have exhorted any, or extorted anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost, Luke 19, 8-10. We need to value the truly valuable in life. And you are meant to give yourself over completely and achieve, to achieve the greatest pleasure in life. Verse 19 is spoken to demonstrate the difference between that purpose-driven life, that best life kind of now kind of life, and the true life found in Christ. He says, to whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You see, this church basked in its luxury and its ease. They said that they were blessed by God. But that church in Smyrna, they must have been doing something wrong. That's why they're being persecuted. That's why these other churches are having issues with being culturally relevant. But Christ is saying, my people suffer and are tested. And then Christ does what only God to do can do. He then makes demands on his creation, demands that they can't do. He tells them, be zealous, repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. But we, we have been told in our left-behind theology that that door that he's speaking of there, that's the door of your heart that that gentleman Jesus is standing at, patiently knocking, pleading with you, please open the door, put down your fork, let me come in. That way you can share your stuff with me. And let's just be honest. How often is that what we hear in our heart when the whole thing when money is talked about and giving is talked about. God wants my money. But is that the door of your heart that is being spoken of here? That the one that the gentleman Jesus is patiently knocking on, waiting for you to see some value in him? Well, there was another time that Jesus said something about a door. Gospel of John chapter 10, 
Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will, go, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And then Jesus ends the letter to the churches, all seven churches, in the same way that he ended all of these letters. He says to them and to us, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on the throne. I will also overcome, or I'm sorry, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here's the contrast. Those that profess Christ are spoken of in verses 15 through 17. And then the impossible command is made to all creation. The command that is the perceptive will of God. This is verses 18 and 19. It is the chasm between the enemies of God and the children of God. And then those who have repented, they are then spoken of in verses 20 through 22. And this is where the will of God and being okay with the uncomfortable truth that God makes demands on people that they can't keep, is fleshed out for us. Because as you sit here, before coming to Christ, you know that you did not love God. We can't in our carnal, fleshly state. We didn't love God because we couldn't love God. We must be born again to be able to do this. And this is the one that will overcome. But how does one overcome? You must be born again. We must have life. And the Spirit is the one who gives life. We don't buy it. We can't gain it. The flesh profits nothing. And the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. John 6.33 or 6.63. So what does the overcoming life look like? Well, what did he say in verse 21? He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. We overcome by valuing what he did, by living as a Christian hedonist. And this is why every letter to all seven churches end the same way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And again, this is a command. Hear the Spirit. The Spirit, one job, is to elevate Christ. To make much of Him. And this is what the Spirit is telling you. Delight yourself in that which is good. Give yourself over to that which is the fullness of joy. And when we do that, how we do that, we do that by fixing our eyes on Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, which is you, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When we do that, when we hear the Spirit, we will understand that Jesus is of more value than anything in this world. In fact, knowing Him is of more value than everything in this world. 
And what does that look, life kind of look like? What does a life of one that is overcoming, what does that actually look like? Well, we'll lay aside every weight in this sin which so easily entangles us. And we'll run with endurance the race that is set before us. Your race and your race. Not anybody else's. We will do as Christ admonished us to do. Live like he did. He was a hedonist. Again, what is a hedonist? A hedonist is a person whose sole purpose in life is to live for that which brings them the greatest pleasure. And the entire life of Jesus was given over to the fulfillment of the greatest pleasure that he could ever attain. So why then are so many people who claim to be Christian live as carnal hedonists and not Christian hedonists? Because they don't know Psalm 1611, which tells us, you will make known to me the path of life. Same thing as the door that Christ says that he stands at, the same thing that he says that he opens and no one can close. It's that that changes our ability to value him. But when that happens, when you've had your heart change, then you will understand the rest of Psalm 1611. In your presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand is pleasures forevermore. And this is why we need to see Christ. We've been poorly taught. We've been poorly led. We need to see Christ. And when we do, and as we endeavor to live quorum Deo in the presence of God, it is then that we will be truly become Christian hedonist. And this brings me back to those two verses I told you to, to ponder and to write down. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. How, how do I become a Christian hedonist? Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in Yahweh, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Saints, if you are a saint, Christ, you know that Christ is the only thing that brings you pleasure, that brings you joy. The things of the world, fleeting. True joy is only found in him. His desire for you is for you to be the fullest that you could possibly be in joy. That's his desire for you. Let us learn to live as Christian hedonists. Forsaking all to know Christ and basking in the joy that is Christ. Let's pray.